Following the Babylonian exile, we entered the era of the Persians. And for the next 200 years or so, well, not much happened. So, um, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm Jason Harris, and this is Jew Oughta Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Okay, okay. Just kidding about nothing happening, but only sort of. Now, if you had to pick an empire to live under, the Persians around the 5th century BCE would be an excellent choice, especially for the Jews. But it's also true that we actually don't know a whole lot about Jewish life in the Persian Empire during this era. There's basically a blackout in both the historical and literary record, a 200-year period in which we hear almost nothing from or about the Jews living in the Persian diaspora outside the land of Israel. Some scholars theorize it's because life was good. Jews were too busy prospering in the relatively tolerant Persian society to spend much time writing about any difficulties. In fact, the one Jewish story that did emerge from this period was an optimistic one. It's about a Jewish woman in the city of Susa who rose to become queen of the empire. Her name was Esther, and her story, the Book of Esther, wound up in the Hebrew Bible and became the basis for the Jewish holiday of Purim. It's almost certainly fiction. There's no historical record of a Jewish queen of Persia. Yet the book, or at least parts of it, accurately reflect details of the Persian court that only a contemporary could have known, so it must date to this era. The Jews of Persia, it seems, were generally doing well. But back in the land of Israel, we do get some news. What was now the Persian province of Yehud, or Judah, the exiles were steadily streaming back. Jerusalem was a work in progress, trying to return to its previous glory before the Babylonian conquest of 586 BCE. There remained a struggle over identity and inclusion between the descendants of the exiles who had returned from Babylon and those who had remained behind in Judah originally. Because the biblical account of this moment was written by the exiled group, we have their perspective on the effort to delineate just who was a Jew and who was not, who was considered holy and who separate. At the same time was the effort to make the laws of Moses, the laws of the Torah, known to the public so that all might partake in the renewed covenant. In a highly charged and dramatic moment, the text was read out to the people assembled in Jerusalem, publicly launching Judaism onto the world. By the 400s BCE, the Torah was here more or less as we know it today, ushered in by a priest-scribe named Ezra, with the support of a governor named Nehemiah. We are rapidly approaching the end of this season, on the first thousand years or so of Jewish history, asking the question, how did the Jews become Jews? Nehemiah, who was the governor of Judah, wrote a book, what we have today as the Book of Nehemiah. In the eighth chapter, Nehemiah recorded a great assembling of all the people in the public square in Jerusalem. The air was filled with emotion, a mix of excitement and anxiety and anticipation. Once gathered, men and women and all who could listen with understanding asked Ezra to bring out the scroll of the teaching of Moses. He stood upon a wooden tower where all could see him and, more importantly, see him open the scroll. 
As he did, the people stood in honor of the moment. From first light until midday, Ezra read. As he read, a group of men explained the teaching to the people. In the climactic moment, Nehemiah wrote, They read from the scroll of the teaching of God, translating it and giving the sense, so they understood the meaning. The day was declared holy to the Lord, and the people were instructed not to mourn or weep, but to celebrate, to rejoice in the Lord as the source of their strength. From the reading, the people learned that they must make small shelters, called booths, to live in during this festive time, booths made from tree branches and placed around their homes. On the second day, the heads of the clans met with the priests and together went to Ezra to study the words of the teaching. For seven days this went on. On the eighth day, a solemn gathering to remember what they had done. Centuries later, the rabbis would declare that this was the moment Judaism was born. So who was Nehemiah? And who was Ezra? What was this scroll of teaching that he was reading from? Why did it need to be translated? Why did the people need to understand the meaning? Why did they have to live in booths? In short, what was going on in this eighth chapter? The period that came after the Babylonian exile, what we call the post-exile era, was concerned with three things. One, restoring the temple. Two, bringing the laws of Moses to the masses. And three, figuring out who gets to claim Israelite identity and who doesn't. When we left things off last episode, the second temple had just been completed and dedicated in about 515 BCE. It was a triumphant moment for the Jews who had returned from exile in Babylon. They were part of the first of three waves of returnees, the other two coming later with Ezra and Nehemiah. That first group was concerned primarily with re-establishing the temple, which they did. They were also concerned with beginning to define the religious and ethnic boundaries of this newish identity that claimed direct descent from the ancient Israelites. There was a tension here. Two groups of people understood themselves as the legitimate heirs of the Israelites. One was the exiles from Babylon, and the other were the people they called Am Haaretz, the people of the land, those who had remained behind in Judah this whole time. Now everyone worshipped Yahweh, but the exiles didn't consider the Am Haaretz, the people of the land, to be legitimately Israelites. The exiles saw them as ethnically descended from the Assyrians, who had conquered and colonized the kingdom of Israel some two centuries before. In the exiles' point of view, that, and their continued practice of pre-exile religious practices, all that rendered them ritually unfit for the obligations of worshipping Yahweh at the temple. Because that required you to be of pure Israelite stock. The Am Haaretz, of course, disagreed. Though many of them may have come from the northern kingdom of Israel, by now all were worshippers of Yahweh and equally heirs to the Israelite tradition. But the exiles refused to allow the people of the land to help rebuild the temple. So ultimately the first goal was reached. The temple was rebuilt. But what about the second and third goals? Bringing the laws of Moses to the people and defining the boundaries of who gets to be in and welcomed into the community. After the temple was finished in 515 BCE, the Hebrew Bible goes silent for about 50 years. But then two characters emerge, Ezra and Nehemiah, one a priest, the other a politician. They will coalesce the centuries-long movement from Israelite religion to Judaism, putting the finishing touches on the centrality of Jerusalem, the separation of a distinct Jewish identity, and the authoritative book that will come to define the Jewish people and their covenant with God.
One of the enduring questions of biblical scholarship is who came back from Babylon first? Ezra the priest or Nehemiah the politician? The Bible says Ezra, some scholars say Nehemiah. We're pretty secure in the dates and activities of Nehemiah, less so Ezra. But for our purposes, as well as the biblical account, we'll assume that they were in close proximity to one another. So quick chronology reminder. The Babylonian exile began in 597 BCE. Jerusalem was sacked in 586. The exile was ended by the Persian king Cyrus the Great in 538. And in 515 BCE, the second temple was completed. Then silence. Then around 458, Ezra, a scribe from a priestly family, came from Babylon with a second wave of exiles returning to the land of Israel. Ezra was the official representative of the exile community, leading them home. His goal was to shore up the ethical boundaries of this new Jewish religion by thoroughly separating the true Israelites from the illegitimate ones, the Amha'arets in his view. And in this, he was officially backed by the Persian government, which had an ulterior motive in pushing a stricter form of religion in Judah. Why? In short, the Greeks. The Greeks were starting to dance around the edges of the Persian Empire, which made Judah, along the Mediterranean Sea, prime real estate, and the Persians wanted to make sure it was locked up for them. The historian Mary Joan Leith writes that the Persians saw the Judeans as a loyal elite, socially and economically bound to the empire. In other words, it would be helpful to the Persians if there was a unified people of Israel and Judah who had a tight rein on who was in their community and who was not. That was why the Persians supported Ezra's religious reform movement. And in this, Ezra had another powerful ally. Thirteen years or so after Ezra arrived in Judah, back in Babylon, in the city of Susa, an Israelite named Nehemiah was about to step into history. In the year 445 BCE, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Persia, which enabled him to keep his ear to the ground about the goings-on with his people. He received news about the sorry state of affairs back in Judah. The people were in a state of disgrace. Jerusalem's walls had crumbled and its gates were destroyed by fire. Like Ezra, Nehemiah was convinced that the fault lay in the ongoing sins of the Israelites, who were failing to observe the laws of Moses in keeping the covenant. He asked the Babylonian king for permission to head to Judah, and was granted the governorship of the province. Three days after arriving in Jerusalem, in the dead of night, Nehemiah and a few chosen men made a secret inspection of the broken walls of Jerusalem. He did not yet want the people to know, he wrote, what my God had put in my mind to do for Jerusalem. Over several days, he formulated a plan and then went to the people with it. To end our state of disgrace, he said, we must rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the people enthusiastically took up the cause. Nehemiah listed the names of everyone who participated, from the highest status to those of the lowest. All were in it together. Nehemiah recorded that in only 52 days they rebuilt the walls and dedicated anew the sacred city of Jerusalem. It was an incredible feat to recapture the glory of Judaism's sacred city. Now, side note, these are not the walls you see around Jerusalem's old city today. Today's walls were built by the Ottomans around 500 years ago. But there are places where you can still see the remains of Nehemiah's wall. Now, Nehemiah's wall rebuilding project was part of a larger social reform. In his autobiographical memoir, which forms part of the biblical book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah recounts his role as governor. 
He eliminated debts and reformed taxes to ensure that common people could feed their families. He decreed that every tenth person living in the rural countryside had to move to Jerusalem, which increased the city's population from a few hundred to about 10,000. His efforts re-centered Jerusalem, putting the city once again at the political, economic, and religious center of life in Judah. The historian Karen Armstrong writes that Nehemiah brought new hope to the city. So Ezra brought the second wave of exiles home and Nehemiah III. Ezra was the exiles' spiritual leader, Nehemiah the political one. Of particular, nearly obsessive concern to both Ezra and Nehemiah was intermarriage. Upon his arrival in Judah, Ezra was shocked to find that Israelite men had married non-Israelite women. Ezra moaned that the holy seed has become intermingled with the peoples of the land. There's that phrase, Am Haaretz, the people of the land the pejorative used by the exiles to describe those who had remained behind. Ezra was deeply concerned that the ethnic purity of the Israelites be maintained and not corrupted by any foreigners. And Nehemiah wholeheartedly backed Ezra's policy of opposing mixed marriages. Karen Armstrong writes that it was not designed to ensure the purity of the race in the 20th century sense, but was an attempt to express the new sacred geography developed in exile. The exiles had to live apart from the non-Jews, she writes, as befitted God's holy people. It was an attempt to make Israel a holy and separate people and define the Judean identity by marking out the people who were outside. Ezra was worried about a repeat of the past. Because of our iniquities, he said, we, our kings and our priests, have been handed over to foreign kings, to the sword, to captivity, to pillage, and to humiliation— But now, for a short while, there's been a reprieve from the Lord our God, who has granted us a surviving remnant and given us a stake in his holy place. Remember, it was believed that idolatry and paganism and the failure to uphold the covenant were the reasons that God had sent the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to punish Israel. But now, thanks again to God through the Persian king Cyrus, the Israelites had been released from captivity and allowed to return to the land of Israel. Ezra is saying, let's not screw this up again. He worried that these mixed marriages with non-Israelites would allow those non-Israelite gods to once again creep into the hollowed places for Yahweh, especially the temple. If that happened, Ezra asked God, will you not rage against us till we are destroyed without remnant or survivor? The only way to protect themselves was to embrace the laws of Moses, which showed people how to separate themselves, how to uphold the covenant, how to live by the commandments, and how to be God's holy people. Ezra's reading of the Torah doesn't quite have the dramatic appeal of Moses in the Ten Commandments. No balls of flame, mountaineering, rebellious people, golden idols, Charlton Heston. But if Ezra's moment lacked Hollywood drama, it was still, as far as Jewish history goes, climactic on the scale of Mount Sinai. The biblical writers accorded Ezra an almost equal status with Moses in the law-giving department. Moses gave Israelites the law, but it was Ezra who gave them the book that explained it all. 
Remember, one of the pillars of this newish Jewish religion, which had developed in Babylon, was the observance of various laws, rituals, and commandments. These had been written by the priests and scribes, but everyone had to keep the laws. And this meant that people had to be told and taught what those laws were and how to observe them. Jews are obligated to collectively read the Torah, and as individuals to study it. And so in the eighth chapter of the book of Nehemiah, we find the people packed together in Jerusalem in great anticipation, with Ezra standing on a raised platform above them so that everyone could see the scroll from which he was reading. Walk into any synagogue today, and you'll find this space represented, called a bima, where the Torah is read aloud. Ezra began reading at the first light of day, and the people stood to hear. Upon the platform, the bima, Ezra had with him several men and priests of the Levite tribe, whose job it was to explain the teaching found in the scroll as Ezra read it. And so, writes Nehemiah, they read from the scroll of the teaching of God, translating it and giving the sense so they understood the reading. Now, it doesn't sound like much, and even if you went to Sunday school, you probably never encountered this verse. But it must surely, I think, be one of the most important of the Hebrew Bible, for it marks the moment that Judaism was transmitted to the masses. As Ezra read from the scroll of teaching, Nehemiah writes that the priests translated it and gave what he calls the sense, so that the people understood the reading. What were they translating? Well, the scroll itself was written in Aramaic, the language of the Babylonians. But the people spoke Hebrew, their everyday language, and so purely on a language basis, the words had to be translated. And the sense, that was what the Jewish philosopher Rashi understood as the wisdom of the text. What we have here are the experts in this new Jewish law interpreting the words of the scroll so that the ordinary people would understand the meaning, so they would know what these laws instructed them to do, what was correct and incorrect. And if that sounds like the job of a rabbi, well, yeah, this was the role that the rabbis would later adopt for themselves, though that is still centuries away. But from the beginning then, we have this idea that nationhood is based on all the people knowing and similarly understanding the laws and rituals as written in a text that they are responsible for studying and interpreting. If you wanted to participate in the religion of the nation, you had to play a role in this literary process. Now the people were so overcome with wonder at hearing these words that they cried. Ezra, Nehemiah, and the priests had to tell them to stop. But actually, this day was a celebration. It was a holy day, and they should feast and drink and give food to whomever doesn't have anything. The people did so, wrote Nehemiah, because they now understood the things they were told. The next day, the heads of the clans and the Levite priests gathered with Ezra, not to just read from the scroll, but to study it. And they found that God had commanded Moses to tell the Israelites that for seven days they must live in booths, small shelters made of tree branches and placed outside for the duration of this week-long festival. For centuries this practice had been lost, but now, writes Nehemiah, the whole community that returned from the captivity made the booths, and there was very great rejoicing. Now Jews will recognize this festival of the booths as Sukkot, the week-long celebration in late September or October, in which many Jews today do indeed build simple booths to eat in or even sleep in, what began in ancient times as a festival marking the fall harvest was repurposed here by the scroll of teaching as connected to Moses and the Exodus, 
a reminder of the Israelites wandering the desert wilderness to reach the promised land. Sukkot also became associated with the new year, and later tradition would suggest that Ezra's reading of the scroll occurred on New Year's Day, what we call today Rosh Hashanah. The actual origins of Rosh Hashanah are murky, and probably took a few centuries to unfold. But the point is that this newish Jewish religion is now taking the Israelites' old festivals and renewing them to connect with the ancient traditions that serve the Jewish narrative. It was another evolutionary innovation that took the Israelite religious system into Judaism by renewing and refreshing the covenant between the people and God. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, formerly the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom who died about a year ago, he wrote that the unique feature of the Torah is the requirement that all the people of Israel are required to know it, not just the elite. He quotes from the book of Isaiah, And all your children shall be learned of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Rabbi Sachs wrote that this was and remains the unique feature of the Torah as the written constitution of the Jewish people, as a nation under the sovereignty of God. Everyone is expected not merely to keep the law, but to know it. And this development was first expressed here with Ezra's reading, what Rabbi Sachs termed a defining moment in Jewish history that took the form not of a battle, but of a massive adult education program. Ezra and Nehemiah realized that the most significant battles in ensuring the Jewish future were cultural, not military. And this, he wrote, was one of the most transformative insights in history. Ezra's reading of the scroll of teaching, what we know was at least parts of the Torah, brought the great Jewish text onto the world stage, where it remains today. But how did Ezra get it? And what parts were he reading? Throughout this season, we've been asking the question of how the Jews became Jews. And a key part of that, what we've touched on almost every episode, is who wrote the Hebrew Bible? Where did these stories come from and why? For our second to last episode next time, we'll get around to addressing one of the most popular questions in Jewish, if not also Western history. Who wrote the Bible? As always, my website is jewanano.com and my email is jewanonopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraot. See you later.